In old school games, life is cheap. Don't be a dope. Bring your pole, oil, and rope. And try not to go down in a heap. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Down in a Heap podcast. I'm your host, Rob, podcasting to you from beautiful northeast Minneapolis. It's a murky, wet day today. Been thawing like crazy around here in Minnesota, and that transforms the landscape into a quagmire and the roads to a shell, shell hole like battlefield of potholes to dodge. So it's not a whole lot of fun around here at the moment. But I have the day off, and it's been a long time since I kind of lost my stride with a, with a podcast, so I apologize for not putting anything up lately. I, I follow, I don't know, maybe like 20 anchor casts or something, um, and I try and keep up with all of them. Some are easier than others because they're, you know, sporadic like mine. Some drop podcasts virtually every day and I don't always keep up with those like Tenkar and stuff but um I found a couple other ones though to follow and I'm trying to squeeze them in um Froth mentioned on the I think on the Audio Dungeon Discord The Dice Are Screaming by Randy and Mike and started listening to them and then by way of them became exposed to Playing It Wrong by Chuck Thorne, and kind of binge listened to a lot of those episodes over the weekend and the past few days, and uh, yeah, it's been occupying a lot of my time, and it's funny, you get a little bit of, uh, I don't know, I get a lot of ideas from podcasts, and I really, an inspiration, and I enjoy listening to them, but at some on some level, I sometimes feel like they intrude on my, I don't know. <laughs> I sometimes feel like maybe they give me a little bit of a imposter complex or something where I realize that, oh, well, this person talked about a subject that I talked about in my podcast six months ago. <laughs> and... I don't know, it made me start wondering, well, why am I doing these podcasts and everything? And I know some of it has to do with just having a an arena to throw my thoughts out there and ideas and share them with people and hopefully they enjoy it and get some inspiration from it or start a conversation. It's also... I'm sure has something to do with the fact that I'm middle-aged now and don't have any children and start thinking about what kind of things are going to be left behind when I'm gone. And I don't know if this podcast will be lingering out in the, the ether somewhere when I'm long gone, but I don't know. It might be something that will give my nieces and nephews and their children a hoot when, when I'm gone. But, not to try and be too morbid, um, I've got a lot of ideas and and show concepts coming up, but 
I'm having a real hard time on trying to line them up in some kind of order that makes sense. So I'm afraid today is going to be a grab bag of sorts of just little thoughts and updates on what I'm doing and gaming and stuff. I had quite a, uh, I think four different calls from the Magic User Show, and three of them from Tim Shorts and Froth and Cody concerned creative spellcasting, and I'd like to devote a whole episode to that in the near future, but I'd love it if more of you would call in or email me with ideas and things that you've seen in gaming and at your table where a player or one of your NPCs or monsters has used a spell in a unique way that kind of surprised people. So give me a call, and once I have a number of things, I'll add my ideas to it too, and I'll do a whole podcast for it. But Cody also had a call in concerning um, just cantrips and stuff, so I'm going to respond to that, play that and respond to that right now. Take it away, Cody. Hey, Rob, it's Cody. I was uh, just catching up on your podcast. And, um, yeah, I liked your, I really liked your Magic User episode. Um, I agree with you on some of the things. On some of the things, I think I have a different opinion, um, specifically cantrips. Um, there are some – so if, if I was going to sit down to play 5th edition, um, I would probably take away or just remove uh, damage-dealing cantrips from the game. And then – I think light is a cantrip. I think that should probably be shifted to like a first level spell. Um, so they're not spamming light. But other than that, I don't really have an issue with them. A lot of the time the effects are on the non-damage dealing spells anyway. so minor that it's not going to break the game or cause any real issues. Um, at least from what I've experienced. So um, anyway, keep up the good work, man. I enjoyed the episode and I'll talk to you later. That could be a pretty workable solution for cantrips in 5e, just as you suggest, taking out the damage-dealing ones. And and I agree, light shouldn't be a cantrip. I think that really strips away part of the challenge of the game, and exploration especially, is if... Because in 5e, what does every race get dark vision except humans and maybe halflings? I think all of them do. So light and darkness has become something that isn't really even an obstacle for most anymore. There's no, unless you need to light something on fire, and why do you need to even have a tinderbox and torches when you've got a magic user that can cast flame bolt to light something on fire? Um, That's just removing an obstacle, a, a mechanic and a, a theme from the game, light and darkness and what you can see and and perceive, that is a huge element in old school games and where where torches and lanterns and having a, even like a torchbearer in your party is just part of the part of the whole theme. Um but yeah if you just remove the damage dealing spells and light that would probably be all right. And that's actually kind of what Castles and Crusades does. I thought they had a pretty good cantrip system where they basically took a lot of the 
original AD&D magic user spells that were first level, but really underpowered compared to some other first level spells like Message and Mending and you know, Wizard Mark and things like that and turn them into cantrips and they do things like that for clerics and druids and illusionists too and that kind of stuff I can buy into. I mean like Mage Hand is kind of a cool thing um, and being able to make little sounds and noises and stuff. I, I like all that stuff. It makes magic users more magical, more kind of mysterious but I I still don't really like the at will kind of thing and then you've got the whole warlock complication where you almost have to give them eldritch blast or they're going to be really underpowered I think compared to the other casting classes but I suppose you could just make that exception and just say they've they're unique in that regard and as far as the other calls from uh, Tim and Froth and the other call from Cody, I'll certainly put that in when I do the, those in when I do the uh, creative casting podcast and hope some of the rest of you listeners will also call in. But let's change gears now. One of my not-so-original ideas is using the maps and settings from old fantasy and science fiction board games as a setting for my adventure games. The main one I'm considering is, uh, and I've used before, is Mineria from the Divine Rights setting. It's a beautiful map by Trampier. Google it and check it out. It's got really cool icons for towns and trees and mountains and it's very colorful with 11 different kingdoms and two sorceress principalities the the eaters of wisdom and their invisible school of thaumaturgy and the black hand who resides at the tower of zards and there's several kingdoms that are controlled by monstrous or demi-human races, Elfland, the dwarves who are scattered around in various holdings, the trolls also scattered around in various holdings, and the kingdom of Zorn, which is controlled by the goblins. There's also a great deal of brown areas, which are just unclaimed wild regions, um, deserts like the Waste of Akaka and the the Withering and the Blasted Heath, the wild reaches to the north, uh, the banished lands, all these different kind of evocative names. And there's little uh, uh, placeholder things too on here, like the faces to the sea, which are kind of like Easter Island statues, the tombs of old, the crater of the punishing star, um, the frosted downs, the forest of lurking, It's a really cool map. Also ancient battlefields. Um, There's all kinds of mercenaries that can join your factions in the board game. Uh, Ogsbog the Ogre from the Stumphole. There's a dragon. There's the Scum, 
which is a group of horrible mercenaries that just die. They're, they represent the first losses that you have in, a, in combat and kind of just soak up losses for you. It's the Black Knight, Shardenzer, the, the Water Sorcerer, the Ghost Riders of Kaas, the Order of the Hippogriff. Just a really cool setting. And I like the idea of using a board game because you could conceivably you play a game and have the results of the game affecting your actual campaign setting. And that can be the ebb and flow of background events that are happening. Or you play the game and that's setting the, the, um, the ground for the political situation at the time that the campaign starts. So... The game represents the recent history. You can use the mechanics of the game to just conduct various combats and things or use the random events table for big macro events that happen. And, I, yeah, the the board, or the, the map itself is just so evocative, it's... It's got the heap in the hills. I gotta like that, right? That's one of the towns and ponds, so the heap. Um, so that's one that I have used it in some campaigns in the past, and they never really got very far, and it's. I think it's time I pull that out again, and I, I am using it. The other one that I'd like to use eventually is Revolt on Antares. That's a mini game by Tom Woldway that came out in the 80s when TSR produced uh, a bunch of these little micro games and it's a a sci-fi setting much like divine right there's a bunch of different factions that you can play and there's several different scenarios one is like an invasion by aliens and you band together to fight the aliens Um, but the factions all have different little powers they have their own Forces, counters for their forces, whether they're hovercraft or laser tanks, powered infantry, jump troops. And again, like Divine Right, there's all kinds of crazy mercenaries that can join your faction. There's uh, Andros, an android of unknown alien manufacturer. He can summon and command the Phantom Regiment a core of other dimensional warriors who move across the terrain like dimensional plane. Corvus Andromeda, an intergalactic assassin. Dr. Death, an outlaw who creates zombie-like troops from the dead. Emerald Eridandi, the commander of the Emerald Company. The Iron General, a cyborg commander of a mercenary laser tank battalion. Um... The Null Space Kid, a youthful intergalactic adventurer and pilot of an air jet squadron. And Tovan Palakwire, an intergalactic smuggler and weapons runner. So, like Divine Right, you could be playing this game or something and have that as the backdrop of uh, what's going on in the game or as a, as a recent history. I know Jeff Reince on his Jeff's Game Blog has talked about both these games uh, Ray Otis brought up Revolt on Antares a couple episodes ago as a potential podcast topic, and Ray, I hope you do that sometimes, because I, th- I think it's a really cool little game. But 
yeah, these maps and maps in general are things that often are the start of a seed for a campaign idea for, for me and for creating a setting, um, whether it's inspiration to create my own map or just taking these maps and, and using them as is. Um, that, that latter part is a nice shortcut. You, uh, you have everything all done for you, and it's just a matter of fleshing it out. And that's what I'm doing right now with the Divine Right setting. I'm going to... I'm running a game set in that, and uh, that will be my next segment. But call in if you have any suggestions for other old board games or your thoughts on using a board game as a, as a background for, uh, for your role-playing adventure games. I finally knuckled under about a month ago and decided to pony up the 50 bucks or whatever it was with my discount at my friendly local game store to buy the Into the Borderlands tome that Goodman Games released. It's a collection of B1 and B2 and um, a 5th edition conversion. It's got a bunch of uh, little essays at the beginning, Luke Gygax, uh, Harley Stroh, uh, Brandon LaSalle, um, some others I'm forgetting, and a, a cool interview with Mike Carr, who was the uh, author of In, In Search of the Unknown. And they have two different scans of each of the modules, uh, different editions of them, and then the fifth ed conversion, which I'm not really all that interested in, but they do have some additional things for wilderness encounters and stuff in there and some other locations and a couple little changes to the module that I might or might not use but but this really did spark my interest in in these old modules again and I decided to put that on at the top of my list for my next campaigns to to uh, do a keep on the borderlands redo and the opportunity kind of presented itself when most of the group wasn't available one session and it was just Keith and Ian and me that were available so I said hey let's start playing this and we'll play it whenever uh, there's a smaller amount of people as kind of a filler kind of thing and we played again last week and we're going to play tomorrow so it's actually becoming more of a a regular thing now and I decided I'm gonna plunk down the keep in the borderlands in the old Benaria divine right setting and combine two old favorites into one like a gaming Reese's peanut butter cup and I'm setting the keep in the north of Immer a human kingdom um, in the northern part of Benaria on the border of the wild reaches which seems like it would be suitable for the area described in the Borderlands. And there's a Dwarven Fortress on the very north of the map, kind of um, tucked away in the corner above Elfland. And I'm going with the conceit that there's a trade route that goes from there to the northernmost town in Immer. And the keep lies along the river crossing to get to this dwarven citadel and other elements I'm going to do to kind of change things up in the keep because 
Keith probably knows the scenario quite well. Adam, I know, has played it. Bill doesn't have any recollection of playing it, and Ian never played it. He's uh, So that's in part why I want to run this, because I think everyone should play Keep in the Borderlands at some point in their gaming career. And um, But one of the things I'm going to do to to inject a little pizzazz, hopefully, is I'm going to have a gold rush going on in, this, in the area where there's been a gold strike and prospectors are kind of starting to flood the area, kind of like Deadwood or something, and panning for gold in the area, and that's kind of riling up the different humanoids and barbarians who see that as an encroachment on their lands. And, um, you know, there's can be all kinds of potential, like, claim jumping, and I don't know what the characters will do if they'll... Maybe they'll even try their hand at prospecting rather than adventuring, and that could open up a bunch of different stuff, too. Um, but Minaria also, when you look at, they, they describe the kingdoms and some of the, the place names and stuff. And for, their dwarves and elves are a little bit different than the standard. Uh, the dwarves they describe as, uh, as kind of backwards in their, in their cultural belief and, and rather spendthrift. They say a typical dwarf laboriously gathers a sack of gold or jewels and then hurries off to the nearest town that offers rich food, strong drink, and tawdry goods. A day or two later, broken, overloaded with costly junk, the dwarf then scuttles back to the mine to pull more riches from the earth, all the while dreaming of that next visit to town. I really like that idea. It's like the reverse of the dwarven stereotype of... A dwarf that's greedy and hoarding gold and gems. And these are more earthy, kind of lusty dwarves that... I mean, it fits in with the dynamics, too, because they've got sacks of gold and gems and stuff. What do they need it for? They want other stuff that they can't get. They And in most settings they describe dwarves as having very few female births so there's a lot of bachelor dwarves and stuff too so yeah they're gonna go hooting and hollering off to the nearest town to blow it on wine women and song and and then go back and grab more gold so i kind of like the idea of these these crazy uh lusty dwarves and um and not being the the miserly kind of grumpy dwarf these are more fun-loving and uh i don't know it just appeals to me it, it kind of makes sense and the elves uh they it says the elves believe themselves to be better endowed with keen intellect noble spirit and pure aspirations than humankind okay that's kind of standard stereotype for a lot of way elves are portrayed but in the setting a generation ago this conceit allowed the elves to abandon their isolation and follow a fanatic king into a senseless war against their neighbors after overrunning most of Mivuar, hothir and immer the goblins intervened to stop them the tides of battle turned and eider bolus the elven capital was sacked and the priceless library ravaged since that time the elves have returned to their reclusive ways studying the few scrolls left to them so this is a twist in that the elves are kind of the the aggressors and the ones that started a war recently, and they're not the noble Tolkien kind of elves. 
and they were bamboozled into following some kind of messianic dictator or something, or at least I see it as, you know, following some kind of Mussolini-like character or something. And if you take the mechanics of BX, which I'm using, if the elves of Elfland are what the elves in BX are, fighter magic users, well, imagine how much power that could be if you had even a hundred elves trying to attack a castle. If they've got a bunch of sleep spells and charm person spells and magic missiles, and they could easily take a castle by causing the guards to fall asleep at the gate or even just charming a few guards to open the gate and picking off crossbowmen on the battlements with magic missiles because they automatically hit. So it makes sense that a group of elves could pretty easily um, take different regions and, you know, set up uh, circles of charmed collaborators um, that would act on their behalf and well, what happens when all these charms start to wear off and people start making their saving throws and stuff? Well, there's the like the underground movement coming that undermines the um, the gains that the elves have acquired. So, anyway, that's kind of what I'm doing with uh, with this B two redo. I'm gonna change up a lot of the encounter areas and stuff, and as well to offer some more surprises and for the for the players that have played it and for me too and uh but using the skeleton of b2 is a really solid base i think with having you know the the lone keep in the in the wilderness the characters are um escorting a little uh cart full of cheese to the keep <laughs> i've got a I'm a cheesemonger. I gotta, I gotta bring cheese into play somewhere along the line, and they ran across a small ruin on their on their way to the keep and investigated that. In the process, they uh, Ian has charmed a hobgoblin Glug as his his bodyguard. Uh, Keith's cleric was bitten and died from poison from a giant rattlesnake in the last session, so he's making up a new cleric. I think that they will encounter at the. I'm going to have a little village before they get to the keep, and Keith's PC will be hanging out there waiting for them. Um, but, yeah, so that's what's going on in my gaming at the moment. Really enjoying uh, whipping up this little campaign. Going to work on it today, so I have things ready for tomorrow. I decided to jot down all the podcasts that I listened to because I was, frankly, kind of curious how many do I follow and here's the anchor cast I listen to. Random Screed, Spike Pit, Gothridge Manor, Joe the Lawyer's Not So Wondrous Imaginings, Red Dice Diaries, Plunder Grounds, Sword Breaker, Matt Random, Thought Eater, Frank T's Liner Notes, No Save for You, Follow Me and Die, Monster Brothers, Daydreaming About Dragons, Dragons Are Real, Tales of Valor and Sorcery, The Happy Whisk, Omega 3D Chicken Coop, The Dungeon Show, Roleplay Rescue, 
the dice are screaming, playing it wrong, and tavern chat. And the non-kind-of-anchor traditional podcasts that I try to follow as well are Hobbs and Friends, Hex Talk, although they haven't put it on an episode in a long time. Come on, guys. Gaming and BS, Save for Half, Spellburn, and The Grognard Files. And I love those podcasts too, but the one thing I like about the Anchor Cast is you get a lot more content. That people are just cranking out stuff virtually. Most, most of these shows are cranking something out once or twice a week or more. Um, so, you know, long-standing podcasts like, say, Save or Die that, I don't know, did that start like in 2011 or 12 or something, and they're maybe at 150 episodes? Well, crap, like, Gothridge Manor is probably that right now, and I don't even know if he's, if Tim's been doing a, a year of podcasting. So, I'm... I'm all for the the small productions that come out frequently and and cover a lot of different ground rather than the ones that are meticulously edited or where they have to round up three or more people or something to to do the podcast so it hardly ever happens. So keep going anchorites and thanks for listening and don't go down in a heap. <laughs>